All right. Well, as I told the, uh, the service in the first service, when, uh, when a pastor sits down and he starts deciding, hey, this is what I feel like the Lord is saying. I'm writing a sermon. Um, this is the deal. There's a number of different ways that he, that he, uh, that he attacks it, so to speak. Um, and they, they happen throughout a pastor's year. So a pastor might say, hey, this whole sermon series is going to be what we call a hospital series. It's about getting yourself well. It's about finding healing. It's about finding some hope in your soul, your emotions, um, or even your physical being. Um, and this, this uh, sermon over here might be what we call an educational sermon. We need you to know what the Bible says about what the Bible says. So we're just going to focus on what does the Bible say about what the Bible says. And then we're going to do that. And then somewhere in the middle, and it's not like um, they're all strictly, but the truth of the matter is this is a printed piece of paper that you get at Bible college, believe it or not. Okay. And then in the middle is the one that says, hey, we're going to take this town for Jesus. You know, there's the one where we're rallying the truth. Okay, and so today I want to do just a little tiny bit um, of some of those. Um, we're looking at Nehemiah, so we're going to be right in the scripture. If you're in a small group, you know that uh, the small group is going to be based upon these passages. We're using the same ones so that we get together, we wrestle with it, we talk about it. If you're not in a small group, I hope you make it to heaven. Um, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad, okay? But the truth of the matter is, we believe so much in small groups that, that we don't want to do church without small groups. Okay, there's another service this morning that was this size or maybe a little bit bigger. And the truth of the matter is one person can only be effectively ministering to about 12 people. They really can. Um, that's a proven fact. And so um, at the end of the day, we said, then how do we make sure everybody gets ministered to? And it's like we take the authority off of the perceived leadership and we um, authorize everybody. And we say, listen, we want to train you. We want to encourage, we, encourage you. We want to empower you. Um, so that you can be lay leaders and, and uh, you get into a small group and if there's a little bit of trouble, that's your place to go to find um, help in time of need. And if the trouble is a little too big, then they come to me and they say, hey, can we bring the, the whole church to bear on this? And then we see that what we can do about that. But the goal is how do we minister to people? And how can we do it the most um, effectively? And doing it in a small group is that way. But let's jump into the book of Nehemiah so that we're not here past your favorite football game um, today or your favorite lunch, okay? Um, so we want to look at Nehemiah. Um, you might want to look it up. It's on page 533 of my Bible. I don't know about yours. If you've got one of these, that's great. If you don't have one of these, pull out your phone, go to Version or whatever Bible app you use. And if you don't have one of those, it's going to show up up there, I promise you. Get handy with one of these, I would encourage you. But in the book of Nehemiah, I just want to deal with the first four verses. And then we're going to tear them apart, and then we're going to look at what's going on. I, also, I was really glad that we were doing this because I, I get to use really powerfully, you know, spiritual words. Some of you maybe wonder once in a while if I even know what I'm talking about up here. But I just want to assure you that I'm very spiritual because I'm going to be saying Nehemiah. Okay, I'm going to say Hakaliah. That's a spiritual word if you ever heard one. Okay, um, I'm going to say Hakaliah. I'm going to say Zerubbabel. Okay, and I bet you can't spit that one out real quick, but I'm going to say it. Um, and it's going to sound real, you know, whatever you want. But these are the players in this story. Um, Artaxerxes. Now, there's a good one. That's a spiritual word right there. Artaxerxes. Okay, he's just a king, but it's a pretty cool word. Um, Nehemiah, chapter one, four verses. Ready? The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. There it is. 
In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, my brother, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. All right? He's laying it all out for us. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept for some days. I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And that's how he begins this whole message from the Lord, okay? He opens this baby right up, and we're seeing that there is trouble. And, and we're going to see, you know, we were talking this morning about in the first service, and we, were, we wrestled with, you know, Nehemiah up from the rubble, and then all of a sudden it just came to be, we should have just called it Nehemiah, trouble in the rubble. That's what it should have been called. That was, I mean, that's so cliche, puts a smile on your face, and it's like, that's kind of hokey. And there you go. You'll remember it, okay? But that's what we're looking at we're looking at this particular situation and what's going on this particular prophetic word begins with nehemiah saying hey these are the words of nehemiah son of hakaliah in the month of kislev and we're going to go down through it believe it or not the the name nehemiah means the comfort of yahweh okay we can't learn a whole lot about this. You might say, well, who is Nehemiah? Like I did. I literally sat down at my, my office, uh, in my office a couple of weeks ago and I began to say, write out the questions from these four verses. And the first one is, who is Nehemiah? And uh, I, I looked and it says, Nehemiah is the son of Hekeliah. And I thought, well, there it is, of course. He's the son of Hekeliah. You know, why did you wonder who Nehemiah was? It's like, I was just as confused, so I did a little more study just for fun. But just for today, let me just say that the word Nehemiah means comfort of Yahweh, comfort of God. Okay? His dad's name is Hekeliah, which means wait for God. And I don't know why you're in here today, what brought you in. I do know this, that God's got you here by an appointment. And I do know that you might be going through some difficulties, some, some, um, some struggles from whatever it is. But at the end of the day, God brought you in here. And in the book of Nehemiah, he wants you to find comfort. And because Nehemiah was begat by Hekeliah, I want to encourage you to wait for God. That's the first two names that we've got. This all takes place in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. And Kislev is November, December. Okay, so not quite fall, but hey, we're pretty close to November, December. We're headed in that direction. So in November, December, um, Nehemiah finds himself in the citadel of Susa, which you will understand to be Iran. Okay, if you were to pull open a map, open it up, you would say it's right about in here somewhere. Okay, we could pinpoint it and put a map up there, but that's not what I want to get to, okay? So he's in Iran, in the citadel of Susa, which is kind of like the winter palace for the king, for Artaxerxes. And then this is not where you want to be in the summertime because they say it is blistering hot. You don't want to be here. So it's just your winter palace, and that's why you're there. And Nehemiah, he's there. He's the cupbearer of the king. And, and, and he's got a friendship with the king, and he finds himself there. And, and the next question I have is, who are the exiles? And the scripture says that his brother Hanani comes to him, and he says, hey, guys, with an entourage, hey, how are things in Jerusalem? How's the city? But how are the exiles? How's our tribe? How are our people? How's our family? And they're like, well, 
You want the good news or the bad news? And he says, give me the good news. And he says, well, they're making it back into the, pro, uh, the providence. They're there, the province, excuse me. They're in the province. It's great. They're coming back. This is wonderful. He says, yeah, and he, but it's not good. They're not good. He, he says it this way. He says, those who survived are coming back. They're back there, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. It's not good with them. It's difficult at best. If you've ever taken a class, and I would encourage you at some point just to read a history on Jewish life and culture, you'll understand that has always been their story. Here's their story playing out once again. And to some, to some degree, their problems are cyclical because of their, um, um, their, their allegiance, their loyalty, their devotion to God is very cyclical. Okay, it goes in cycles. You know, they go into a place, God says, don't touch those gods, those idols. They touch those gods, those idols. They drift away from God. God lets somebody come in and punish, punish them. They come back to God. Everything is good. It's great. And then it, it's just this cycle in Israel's history that keeps doing that. And it's not unlike the history that we all live. We chase after God. We try. We do things. We get distracted by life, by marriage, by children, by money, by things that we want. And then pretty soon we're like, maybe not showing up to church. We don't have time for small group. Yeah, I don't need to serve. We start making excuses. We can talk about that from the book of Hebrews. But at the end of the day, God has to capture our attention and bring us back in. And we, to some degree, live cyclical experiences with God ourselves. But that's the story right here. And so Nehemiah's question is, how are the exiles? And my, my question was, all right, Lord, if I was starting from zero and hadn't, you know, read this before, who are the exiles? Well, the exiles are the conquered Israelites, okay? That's who they are. They're conquered Israelites. In about 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, now there's a good word, biblical word, you know, spiritual word. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Israel. Zedekiah is a Jew that is installed as the king, but he's a puppet king, a vassal king. He's a king whose job is to make these people be nice, make them pay their taxes to Artaxerxes, um, to Darius back there, not Darius, but to, um, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and um, eventually to Artaxerxes, but the whole goal is Zedekiah is just a puppet king, okay? He's just a, a figurehead, if you will, to the real king. He's the governor, but we're going to call him king if we can go there. So that's 597. About 12 years later, Zedekiah is kind of feeling his oats. He's feeling a little testy. He talks to some people, goes down to Egypt, talks to some people. Anyway, he just decides he's done paying taxes, kind of like we all would like to do right now. We would just like to say, you know what? We're done. It's, it, we're done. We're not paying taxes anymore. Let's see you straighten that out in Washington. Okay? But I'm not, those of you that are watching from Washington or the FBI Central Committee, I am not suggesting that to this church. This is a non-political message. Okay. So, so Zedekiah feels a little too big for his boots, and then he decides he's going to rebel. And as a result of that, Babylon attacks Jerusalem. They siege Jerusalem for about a year and a half, almost two years, and the temple is absolutely destroyed. Jewish population is sent into exile back to Babylon. So here's, this is what it means to go into exile. So, the, the army comes in and they conquer us and they take the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the professors, the artists, the poets, the financiers, all of the best of the best. They take all of us and they ship us off to Babylon. That's what happened to Daniel and his buddies. But they do another thing. 
They take the worst of the worst, the scum, the whatever you guys want to call it, and please, no emails, but they take all the problem children from Babylon and they ship them to Jerusalem and Israel and they say, listen, you can have a house, you can have that vineyard, you can have this business, you can have these animals, you can have all this, but you've got to pay taxes. And so you get all this free stuff for paying taxes and you say, well, is that important? That particular act political act is incredibly important to this story. It really is. Because what happens is, you say, why, why are the, the exiles, the people in exiles, they're coming back, they get to come home. Why is that a problem? Why do you think now that I told you? Because there's people in their homes. Can you imagine showing back up a couple of hundred years later, 140 years later, however long that it's been in all reality there, and there's people living in your grandma and grandpa's house, and you're like, hey, that's our inheritance. See, now suddenly you've got some serious conflict, and these people, they have the king's backing. You're not going to throw them off that property. So things aren't good for the Israelites, even though they've come back into the province. And we see what's going on here. These were a people that were scattered, abused, taken advantage of, a people without a country, a people wondering if God had abandoned them yet once again because they're feeling like God's abandoned them. The truth of the matter is they walked away from God. They walked away from his laws. They walked away from his festivals. They walked away from loyalty and devotion to God. And I'm going to be honest with you, the pastor for the last 29 years, I see people do that. I do. It's not because it's hard. The fact of the matter is, it's easy to walk away from God. When God's not doing what I want, when he's not saying what I want to hear, when he's not doing the things that I wish he would do, when he's not serving the world the way I think God should serve the world, then I just can kick back and say, there's no God, God doesn't care, we're down here and he's not away. We make all kinds of excuses just to walk away from God because he's not stepping up and doing what we say. And yet, if he did, we would be God, not him. See? And so we've got this picture of what's going on. What does your relationship to God look like right now? We're going into this, this struggle. Do you feel like an exile right now? Do you feel like, wow, Lord, my dream, my hope, my plan, my vision, my desires, they've kind of been <clears throat> yanked out from underneath my feet? This isn't the way or where I expected my life to be at this time, at this age, at this place, right now? Wow, how are the exiles? How are the people following after Jesus? That's what I hear the Holy Spirit saying this morning. How are the people that are following after Jesus right now? The other thing that he asked is, how is Jerusalem? He asked his brother, how's Jerusalem? Well, for 100 years, it's been lying in ruins. Walls have fallen down. And then a guy named Ezra steps up and says, hey, I'm going to approach the king. I'm going to go ask if I can get an edict to rebuild the walls and put the gates back up and, and do this thing. And so 40 years before this particular passage opens up, Ezra goes to Jerusalem, sees things, comes back, goes to the king, says, can I get an edict? He gets an edict. Hey, go rebuild the walls. Yes, do that. He goes down there. The governors all around him don't like him at all. And they come up against him and they begin to attack him um, verbally abuse him and then they run to the king and say that Ezra guy is going to make things bad for you you're doing the wrong thing you're stupid this is not good king you need to shut that down and he rescinds his edict and Ezra has to stop what he's doing and then fast forward 40 years 40 years later 
Ezra, uh, Nehemiah is standing there asking his brother, hey, how are the, ex- uh, the people in exile and how's Jerusalem? And he says, this is what it's like. It's terrible. The, the, the city was in ravage. The walls were in ravage. It was an unplaced for Israelites to live. New folks didn't want to give up their stuff. Old folks wanted their stuff back. See? You got a picture, uh, just a super general picture of what's going on there. So we're looking at this and I wonder, what makes you wonder? What makes you wonder in your quiet time? What are you doing, God? What makes you wonder, where are you, God? What makes you ask, why God? Why me? Why us? Why now? Why here? Why? Why? I believe it's okay to ask those questions, and I think Nehemiah was trying to do the same thing to get an understanding. As we wrestle with the scriptures right now, we understand that the one thing he did believe was that we serve the God of heaven and there is no other God. Period. End of discussion. What other religions refer to as gods are nothing more than demons, demonic influence, the devil himself who's leading people astray, or just their imagination that have carved out idols and things. I have people ask me all the time, but Pastor Joe, how do you know this is the right religion? Well, this is the only religion that has a God that came down here, walked with you, lived for you, died for you, and was raised from the dead for you that I'm aware of, and then appeared again to 500 people and then more beyond to show you that the life that you're living right now is not the only life there is. As a matter of fact, this is the temporary one. The eternal one is yet to come. It, is, it has, it has, it has um, um, advented, if I can make up a word, upon the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. But he's coming back again, and we're going to go home, and this is going to stay here. But you and I are going to live forever, every single one of us. Those that love Jesus will live forever. Those that don't acknowledge and want to love Jesus, they will live forever. It's just a matter of where. And at the end of the day, it is your choice what you want to do. But we serve this God. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah 44. Israel, King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. He said, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Go ahead. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And let him um, um, lay out before me what is yet to come. Yes. Let them all foretell what is to come. All of these fake gods that are on this planet. Go ahead. Let's hear from them. He says, don't tremble, don't tremble, don't be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things that they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Listen to the Lord speak through the person of Isaiah saying, Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit them anything? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. Look at this. The blacksmith takes a tool, works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with a hammer. He forges it with the might of his right arm, his arm. He gets hungry, loses his strength, drinks no water, and grows faint. In essence, he's saying, and where is his God helping him as he makes his God? 
The carpenter measures with a line, makes an outline with a marker, roughs it out with chisels, and marks it with a compass, with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it might dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps looks, uh, took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and then the rain made it grow. It is used for fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, and over that he prepares a meal. That's what Isaiah is saying. This guy went out and cut down a tree, used the piece of wood, started a fire, and made dinner. And he roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself and says, Ha, ah, I am warm and I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. But no one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or the understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing at my right hand a lie? He cannot see the foolishness of taking a rock and carving out a statue and saying, There, this is my God. It's, the rock is a created thing. And he's just decided that it is or is going to resemble metaphorically my God. And God said, don't do this. There are no other gods except me. None at all. I was looking at this and I was pondering a sermon I preached years and years ago about God and idols. And I don't know if you understand this, but a God, biblically speaking, is a deity or the deity, capital G, the deity, Savior, Creator, influences your life, death, and eternity. That is God. God is there. Now, we can say all the things that God did, but we believe that God is, always has been, always will be. And we believe that we cannot comprehend God because God is so big. And like I say before, it's like the cake trying to tell the baker who he is. We don't know. We know what God reveals to us. We know the revelation of God, especially in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We know these things because He's been here. But an idol, an idol is anything created, formed, fashioned, sculpted, painted to represent a being of some sort that can influence the course of your life or death. A representative of art, excuse me, a representative artistic expression of a spiritual being. So people carve things, make a little statue, you and say, this is my God. And some, some religions have like 259,000 gods if you go to India. Say, which one? Some of them have foolish stories, but they've never inter interacted with these people. I love what I saw, um, oh, it was attributed to him, but he said, um, he wrote the book that I love so much, I'm going to lose it. But anyway, um, he, he said this. He said, I, I find that the more I pray, the more coincidences I have. And the less I pray, the less coincidences there are. Coincidences there are. The whole point being that he doesn't believe it's coincidence. When I pray, things happen. 
They do. Things that cannot be accounted for happen because I prayed, not because I did anything. And so we recognize God sticking his finger into our lives and doing something. And you say, yeah, but Pastor Joe, why doesn't he always do this? Well, because he's God and I don't dictate to him. I'm supposed to be at a place where I surrendered my life and he dictates to me. He invites me to come and follow him. He doesn't say, hey, where do you want to go today? What do you want me to do for you? Like he's our genie from the bottle. That's not what it's about. Now, I only share those things with you because we live in a world that people will say, well, that boat is an idol. It's not an idol. It's not an idol. An idol, biblically speaking, is something that can affect you, that you have a relationship with in, in a personal relationship kind of a way. It's a, it's a, you believe it's a deity. I've never met anybody, I've never lived in a neighborhood where anybody was out there bowing down and worshiping his boat and asking it to catch fish for him. I've never been there. He recognizes the boat is a boat. Now, I'm not saying he's not spending too much time on the boat. I'm not saying he shouldn't come home and spend some time with his family. I'm just saying the boat is not an idol. An idol, biblically speaking, is a small g God that is no God at all. And that's important to us when we study the book of Nehemiah. We've got to hold on to this because it interacts with what we think about who we are, what we've been called to, and what God is doing in our lives. John says we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us, this love, because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Listen, this body I live in right now has to die, but I don't have to fear it. There needs to come a time when I, when I grow to the place where I recognize that I have to shed this body. The corrupt has to put on incorrupt. It cannot go to heaven. And so I recognize that while this body may stop existing, I will not. I will continue on in eternity. Jesus was raised from the dead to give us the hope. Because here's the deal. You can't truly live life until you can get past your fear of dying. You're not going to. I once had a shirt that back in the uh, um, 70s and 80s, there was a company called Fear This. And I had a t-shirt in the back of it that said, a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. Because you'll only live it to the point that you're scared to death it will kill you. People ask me, why did you jump off that bridge in Zimbabwe, the Victoria Falls Bridge? I said, because it's quite the experience. They said, what if it killed you? It's like, I'm going to die. I need you to understand I am going to die. I don't know when. But my body is going to die. Not until God wants it to. But I'm going to die. When I come to terms with that and I'm good with that, I can live. I can. Amazing things can happen when I'm not living in fear. So this morning, what I want to share with you is what part of your, your life do you feel is in rubbles? What part of your life do you feel like has been wrecked and the gate is hanging off the hinges, destroyed by the evil one? What part of your life that if you could say, God, could you put this back together for me? What is it you would bring before God right now? What part of your personal life would you say, wow, I just need to sit here and 
This is going to make me emotional because I'm just telling you, I hurt for this. I hurt for this. I hurt for this. And I wonder, does God not see that I'm in exile from this and I want to go back to this? But I can't. But can I go back and it be different? I need God to intervene. And that's what this, this is going to be about. What was Nehemiah's method of going to God? I was processing that in my own life. Let me just ask you these three questions. Number one, does it make you cry? Does whatever the rubble is make you cry? Is there something in your life that you're like, wow, man, it's just, this, this still breaks my heart. God, that hurt. That really hurt. See, because that's where Nehemiah is. And the fact of the matter was it, was, it was his identity as an Israelite. It made him cry because he was Babylonian now, probably in dress, but maybe not in diet. Because there were a couple of them holding out. I'd like to believe Nehemiah was one of them. So he's holding out. But what makes you cry? Because when they told Nehemiah this, the scripture said he cried. And I think it's okay to cry. You know, people are like, men don't cry. I, I think men really know that men do cry. You know, that's not to say there's not times where we say, hey, suck it up. We do. We're stupid. Okay, I'll, I'll give it to you. Don't suck it up. Cry. Man, tears are so good for you. They really are. There are times in my life that I see something happen to somebody else and I cry for them. I do. And it's not just because I'm getting old and standing up here. Okay? I cry when I'm up here because I love you and I don't know why I get emotional when I'm up here, but I do. There, something will happen. We were worshiping this morning in the run-through and I just started crying. And it's like, Lord, not today. Okay, please, could we? And he's like, just cry. Just get it out. And I was just crying because I was happy. What is it about the trouble in your rubble that makes you cry? Because that's the first thing Nehemiah did. Was it serious enough? that we just let the circumstances or whatever just get our emotions out through our eyeballs. Just get them out. Just get them out. It's good for you. I think it's God's way of helping us handle the weight of things. Okay? The book of Romans chapter 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Together. Have you ever cried together for somebody's struggle? You ever been in a crowd, group, small group, whatever it is, and you're talking and somebody shares and, man, this feels so stupid because I just started crying for them and now I'm, I'm hurting for them and they're crying and you're crying. Maybe a couple other people in the group start crying and maybe you're in the group and you're like, man, I wish everybody stopped crying. Suck it up. You know, no, don't do that in small group. Cry. It's okay to cry with each other because we're supposed to rejoice with people who are rejoicing, who got the job, but cry with people who cry. Let me ask you this. Does it make you fast? Not like, not like that, okay? Like, is it just me or has missing three meals made me really hungry today? That kind of fasting, okay? Does it make you fast? You know, in, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you fast, there's an expectation in your Christian experience that you will fast on a regular basis, weekly, believe it or not, because that was Jewish life and culture back in the day. The commentary that I read said most of the time it was on Wednesday. For whatever reason, it was mostly on Wednesday. And I hear people say, yeah, I'm fasting from media today, or 
man, I'm going to fast from Starbucks, and some of you need to fast from that pumpkin spice addiction you're on right now. You know who you are. Don't push that button. Leave me alone. We'll talk later, okay? But, you know, you know just, you're like, I'm fasting from Starbucks. That's not what God's talking about, okay? Say, I'm fasting from uh, chocolate. No, that's not what God's talking about. God is talking about don't eat. Now, listen, talk to your doctors. Make sure it's okay for you to do that. But at the end of the day, fasting from media gives you time back into your life. But fasting from food will heighten your senses, believe it or not. If you blind yourself, not don't blind yourself, but like wrap a thing around your face, and, and you go through a couple of days of not seeing, you will be surprised at how your other senses will begin to heighten, your hearing specifically. It's, it starts to heighten a little bit. It starts to make up for it. Well, going without food will heighten. You'll, you'll, uh, when I do it, it's like, can we please turn the radio off? Janice, could you make the kids be quiet? You know, it's like, she's like, we've got five children, deal with it. And it's like, I'm trying to be spiritual here. And she's like, I don't care. You know, Jesus will take care of you or you'll meet him. Stop it. So fasting is fasting. And in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, so when you fast, so here's the deal. Nehemiah fasted. He cried, he mourned, he fasted. Have you ever fasted? Is the, is the rubble, is the brokenness hurting you so much that you've said, you know what, we, we need to fast about this. I need to anyway. Don't make other people fast. They just get mad. They go without food and they get madder. Okay? But you can fast and you can invite them to join you in a fast. Okay. Fasting historically was one day a week. Praying. Do we pray? Um, not just a few words, but, you know, we'll talk about this in a second. And then giving. In the book of Matthew, it says, when you fast, when you pray, and when you give. So when there's a struggle in my life, those are the first three things that I look at in my personal life with God. Am I giving? Am I fasting? Am I praying? And I, I make sure I'm going there. I check that heartbeat of my relationship to God. And the last thing is, does it make you anguish in prayer? Do you pray with friends for friends? Do you pray with your spouse? Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them how they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'm going to see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice? for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get the justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? I'm just here to tell you this right now, okay? This is what Jesus said about prayer. Jesus said if there is something in your life that's trouble in the rubble, that you should be praying about it to the degree that you are pounding on the door of heaven and you are not relenting. If you prayed about it one time and didn't get what you want, here's my deal. I don't think you were that serious about it. Okay, And I'm not saying that if you're super serious and you can prove to Joe Wood you're serious, God will give you what you want. I'm just saying that if you want God to interact with you in that, you keep praying because Jesus said I'm giving you permission to pound and pound and pound and pound and pound on the door of heaven you make God my father miserable with your request 
And isn't it crazy that in the world that you and I live in, that Jesus says, if somebody keeps knocking on your door and knocking on your door and knocking on your door, sooner or later you will deal with the situation. But for some reason we think that God won't. And this is a God who loves us. This is a God who died for us. This is a God who lives in us. This is a God who wants to speak with us, wants to talk with us, wants to move us. This is a God that cares about the things that you aren't even crying about yet. He's, he cares about the things that you're not anguishing in prayer about yet. And he wants you to be right there with him and he wants to be with you. And as we go through this series, I hope you come to terms with a God who loves you so much. Nehemiah wasn't even talking about something for himself. He didn't want a new job. He didn't want a lot of money. He didn't want God to turn him loose from Babylon so he could go back to Jerusalem. He just wanted Jerusalem rebuilt. He wanted the doors up, the walls up, the people back, the people safe. Yeah, sooner or later, I think he had some aspirations, you know, to maybe be the governor or at least, you know, be in charge a little bit. But at the end of the day, he wasn't making it all about himself. And I'm not saying that you can't go to God with something that you want and do the same thing that Jesus invited us to do. Do you cry out? Do you see the, the inequity or just see the want and cry out and say, God, do you fast? Do you say, I'm so serious. I need to hear from you, so I'm going to go without food so I can hear better. Spiritually, heal, heal, hear better. Do you pray and pray and pray and maybe call a trusted friend and say, will you pray with me about this? Will you pray with me? Do you mourn because of the circumstance that's created broken marriage lost children a job that you never thought you'd be stuck in a relationship that you don't have the opportunity to rebuild an opportunity lost that maybe you thought God can't bring back I don't know but I think God wants us to begin to understand that this is the way Nehemiah did it and maybe we should consider that and do that what's really going on in your life? What is it that you've given up on and you, there's no way it can't happen? So why ask? Why linger in prayer? Why deal with it? Why not keep knocking? Joseph was given a dream. Then he ended up in the bottom of the well. I'm sure he was knocking hard from the bottom of the well. Then he got out and went to Potiphar's house, and I'm sure he was celebrating. And he ended up in Potiphar's prison. I'm sure he was knocking on that prayer hard. Forty years. And he's like, what happened to my, my promise, God? What happened? Sometimes we have to linger days. Sometimes we have to linger moments. Sometimes we have to linger years. How serious are you about the, the trouble in your rubble? How serious? These people are up here because they want to pray with you. They don't necessarily need to know what it is. You can just walk up and say, I got trouble in my rubble. They'll pray for you. They'll pray for you. You can give them an idea what it is. They'll pray for you. You might walk up there and find they already know because the Lord already did it because this is the vineyard. He already told them. 
and you're going to wonder how they knew that. Because that's how God operates. We're going to go into this closing song. And uh, these people are up here. And if you're not from here, you should know that you can move during this song. If you are from here, you should know you can move during this song <laughs> as well. And just say, you know what? I need some prayer for the trouble in my rubble. Fathers, we come before you right now. We thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you that he had a big heart for his nation. We thank you that he cared about the people. He cared about the exiles. He cared about the people that didn't have homes anymore, didn't have land, didn't have vineyards, didn't have any of the things that you promised to Moses when they crossed over the Jordan. And they had it all. Had it all, God. But like us, Lord, sometimes they get caught up in the world around them and their jobs and their spouses and their relationships and their selfishness and their rebellion. And we just need to come to you and say, God, please forgive us. We're so sorry. There's trouble in our rubble now, and we did it. We did it, God. You let it happen because we did it. You gave us what we asked for, and it wasn't what we wanted. So we come before you right now, and we thank you that you're a God who doesn't hold our sin against us, that you cast it as far as the east is from the west, and that it's your desire to be in a close personal relationship with us if we'll follow you and not ask you to follow us. Come, Holy Spirit. In this moment, in this time, why not here? In Jesus' name we pray.